0: The following program is brought to you by Caltech.
1: I'm, I'm going to take a moment here while Michelle switches over and introduce uh, Bob, Bob Rasmussen from JPL. And, uh, let me, and Bob um, joined JPL in 1975 with a Ph.D. in electrical engineering. Early assignments uh, included work on the fault protection system for Voyager launched in 1977. Bob has since supported several flight um, projects in both technical and management roles, often involved closely in autonomy. Bob led attitude control development for Galileo and Cassini and has led research efforts in fault-tolerant computing and model-based software. He has been chief technologist and chief engineer in JPL technical divisions for software and systems engineering, developing, and teaching architecting methods in both areas. He is presently a JPL fellow and architect for Europa mission Studies. And he's also actually working on some kind of neat uh, system modeling kind of stuff as well. So Bob?
0: Thanks, Lynn. Uh, you like my screensaver? If you're curious about what these are, um, ask me offline, I'll tell you they're fascinating. Um, The reason that I like these things is because they remind me of how it's possible to create so much complexity with so little effort. And uh, that's kind of what I want to talk about this morning. And they're backwards. PowerPoint uh, insists on having it its own way. (laughs) Hold on a sec. Try it one more time. And it's, it's right this time. Okay. All right. Um, so you just heard um, a few definitions of resilience. Um, I like the one about uh, being able to spring back. Uh, that's what the dictionary says the word resilient means. Um, resilient systems work no matter what. Brittle systems are easy to break. Okay. Um, this is fine uh, as far as it goes. I'd like to remind people, though, that uh, one of the definitions of engineering is being able to make systems that work, even when things go wrong. Uh, and this has been a definition that's been part of engineering uh, for a long time, especially since engineering became kind of a, a a a branch of mathematics and and science and so forth uh, where we claim to know why things happen. Um, So there's got to be a little bit more to resilience than that. Um, If we look around nature, we find all kinds of of resilient systems, Uh, everything from very sophisticated creatures like this eagle here uh, to Uh, one might say unsophisticated, although there's a lot of magic going on in things like viruses and and whatnot. There's a a whole lot of of resilience in natural systems. Uh, But they relied on many, many generations of trial and error to to get to where they are. And we don't really have that luxury uh, in our engineered systems. They pretty much have to work first time uh, in a lot of situations. So our uh, history of engineering, which in its early days was a lot of trial and error, has evolved to a stage now where we really do have to understand what we're talking about. Um, So we've got an example here of a a system which we hope is resilient, and we'll find out in about a week. (laughs) But um, there are a lot of ways that a system can fail. Uh, When you think about um, some of the more spectacular engineering failures, um, they weren't usually or uh, even often because, hey, something broke uh, and and the system couldn't handle it. Some of the the examples that you can think of uh, are in that category. But when you really dig deep and you go back and look for root cause and and, uh, try to understand what was really going on in these systems, uh, you find that there are actually a lot of ways to fail uh, that don't involve things breaking uh, in the the kind of the the simplistic sense of of that. problems can go all the way back to development, sometimes even very early development when you're trying to figure out what kind of a system to build in the first place, and you choose wrong. Uh, So there are a lot of things that that we could talk about when we talk about resilient systems and how we're gonna deal with each one of these. Um, And so I'm hoping our conversation this week uh, won't be too narrowly focused on one uh, particular uh, area of this long list. And there are new things being added to this list all the time. Uh, malicious action there, for example, uh, is something that uh, we're looking at actively within NASA right now. Um, what do we have to do uh, to defend ourselves uh, against a deliberate attempt to sabotage a system or something to that effect? Uh, operator errors have been a big deal, vastly... Um, representative of all of the problems that we deal with uh, on a daily basis? How do we make ourselves resilient to all of these different kinds of things? Okay, so what does resilience look like? Well, um, we can look at a few examples in our history of systems that have proven to be uh, resilient, even beyond our imagination. Um, Apollo 13 Um, is a good example. Uh, We managed, when I say we, I mean some very clever uh, people um, in Houston and elsewhere uh, working on the Apollo space program. Um, Took a system that was never intended to survive uh, an an explosion and uh, managed nonetheless to bring the crew back home uh, with the help of a lot of, of very clever uh, thinking and some duct tape. Uh, you might not realize that, that uh, the manned crews uh, had been carrying duct tape on board since the Gemini program. Whoever thought of that uh, is a genius. But it wasn't the last time duct tape saved the day on a manned space mission, believe it or not. Uh, And there were uh, other innovative repurposing uh, exercises on the Apollo 13 rescue. Uh, Being able to route power from the LM to the uh, command module, for example, was a repurposing uh, of some wiring. Uh, There are numerous examples where the system, because it had excess capability that could be repurposed and a very clever a uh, group of people on the ground uh, who understood that system, uh, they were able to, to bring that, that system home. Galileo um, is one that I'm very familiar with. I worked on Galileo for seven years before it launched. Uh, it was one of the roughest developments we've ever had uh, at JPL. And then uh, we get it up there and the antenna gets stuck and won't open. And when you've worked on something for seven years, and I uh, i should admit, I left the program four years before it launched. So uh, this was a very, very long development. To get it up there and find out that the means of bringing the data back home had been lost, um, that was really devastating. Now, Nonetheless, this mission managed to bring back several thousand, I think the number was close to 15,000, images and a lot of other data. Why? Well, because the flight system not only could be reprogrammed um, and and had plenty of computing margin to support that, um, but the architecture of the system was such that you could route data around that system very flexibly. The data compression that ultimately enabled Uh, all of these images to be downlinked was done in the Attitude Control computer, which supported DMA from cameras. Not something that uh, we knew ahead of time we were going to use, but uh, we had this idea in our mind that flexibility was a good thing. So we rescued that mission. Um, Another example is the Hubble Space Telescope. Now, in this particular case, excuse me a sec. Okay. Uh, in this particular case, uh, there were a lot of, of uh, reasons why uh, Hubble managed to uh, get past its early optical problems, uh, but a big reason was on orbit instrument replaceability. So here again, a, when you're thinking in terms of resilience and you're trying to imagine what it means to be resilient. You have to think outside the box. This isn't just redundancy. This isn't just fault management or clever algorithms um, or what have you. There's a lot of factors that that come into play. And in these situations, we relied very much on the fact that we had some very clever people on the ground um, who could figure this out, and we got lucky. Uh, There were a lot of reasons why these should not have worked, uh, even with all the cleverness. But uh, a few things happened right. Okay, so where can we go from here? Uh, People are looking at things like Titan balloon missions. Um, The idea here is that you need much more self-direction than a normal mission because what's happening from day to day isn't particularly predictable. You need to be very tolerant to variety uh, in the environment and so forth. Uh, What would it take to make a system like that resilient in the same sense that, for for example, uh, Galileo turned out to be? Uh, Could we put this kind of resilience into a system uh, that is so hard to predict and control? Um, I think this is part of the motive for a workshop like this is to see what this, this really means to the way we engineer systems. Um, well, we've got some things that we might aspire to. Um, you all remember the uh, T-800 robot, right? Very uh, fault-tolerant, goal-oriented uh, system. It degraded gracefully, as you recall. Um, is this really what we have to aspire to? Well, probably not because movie magic isn't going to be the solution to our problems here. We've got to, we've got to get this back into the engineering box that we really understand. So what has the approach been up to now? in thinking about this, it occurred to me that what we've been doing largely over the history of our uh, engineering efforts is analogous to castle building. It's a, it's a siege mentality. We set out a perimeter, and we defend it. We understand what's going on in the, inside that perimeter. We keep it well-stocked, uh, and you know, things like redundancy and, and uh, performance margins and that sort of thing. But that's really the the mode that we've been in thinking about how to build robust systems. Um, The variations that we deal with are largely prescribed. And this gives us a a lot of confidence that we we can deal with the issues that uh, we've identified. Um, But it's a fairly limiting strategy when, when you really think about it. For some systems, this is exactly the right thing to do. Like a launch vehicle, Um, you're not going to sit there and and throw a bunch of clever people at a launch problem uh, when the system's five miles up, you know, it's just not going to work. So for a lot of systems, this really is the right answer. But it's got this fundamental limitation that if that parameter is ever breached, you're in real trouble. So I think part of this resilience question is, do we continue to go in this mode of defend uh, what, we've, what we understand or move into this new realm of adaptation? And I think when you think about what happened to, the, to castles as technology advanced uh, and these perimeters became easy to break down, uh, the whole strategy had to shift, and it became much more about good intelligence, good maneuverability, a lot of issues besides simply hold the perimeter. Uh, And and I think this is where we're headed uh, for these more challenging missions. (coughs) Adaptation is all about understanding the situation that you're in, but then responding creatively to to the situation uh, that you find yourself in. If you look at the way we deal with uh, with problems in our present-day systems, even in uh, kind of the people-oriented ground responses for uh, contingencies, they're very much uh, procedural kinds of things, canned responses, if this happens, do that, that sort of thing. In an adaptive system, you're much more dependent on the acquisition of new knowledge and the ability to solve problems. So... Um, when we think about resilience, this is the kind of thing I think we should be thinking about. And not just technical issues. Development issues, operational issues, all of these kinds of things uh, need, to be, uh, need to be thought of. So we've taken what is already a hard problem, and we just made it a lot harder. So we have to convince ourselves that we even know how to, to deal with the hard problems before we can take this step. So, some tough architectural questions arise here. Uh, when is resilience the right answer? Like I said, you know, for something like a launch vehicle, maybe this hold the perimeter approach is really the right strategy. Um, when you come to a project manager and you say, I think our system needs to do whatever uh, in order to be extra resilient, you have to be able to defend that choice Uh, and say why you think that that's the right answer uh, for that problem. You also have to be able to explain how resilience fits into the larger picture. uh, If you look at how we deal with a lot of our uh, technical disciplines, they kind of get added on to a system. Uh, Fault tolerance is a a particular uh, example of that that I'll talk a little bit more about later, but the idea uh, for a lot of fault tolerance uh, approaches that are in use today is build a system that works normally and then figure out what you can add to it to make it uh, more tolerant to faults, more tolerant to to things going wrong. Um, I don't think resilience should be thought of in those terms, so you have to really think about how it folds into the fabric of a system. What are the building blocks, both technical and programmatic of resilience? You got to keep this programmatic part in your head just as much as the technical part, because that's where a lot of the mistakes happen, that you're going to have to be resilient to. And then how do you, how do you make the argument that you've built a resilient system? Somebody just spent uh, a lot of money on a system that, that you said will work just fine in this new environment under these new conditions because it's resilient. How, how can you prove that? Um, and I think it's gotta be more than, well, we tested it, because I think part of the resilience question in the first place is, how do you deal with problems that you've never seen yet? How can you test something that, that uh, is, is a, an open-ended question? So we have to think about these kinds of things. So what are these? Well, uh, that, as it's been mentioned, these are systems engineering questions. And that means that it's not just a simple sum of technologies that produces uh, an answer here. You can't go out. Uh, I was having a nice conversation here before we got started. You can't go out and just plug a bunch of apps together into your uh, system and expect those apps to all cooperate and make resilience happen, even though those apps may themselves be incredibly resilient on their own. Uh, you really have to, to bring systems kind of thinking to this. And um, that means standing back and and really looking at the system as a system. You have to be able to reason about the system, not about its pieces. And so we'll talk about about what that really means here. Um, The other thing to realize here, though, is that the system that we're talking about is not just one system. Every time there's a fault, every time the environment changes, every time an operator makes a mistake, um, you're dealing with a new system, a new set of of situations uh, that that did not exist before. Um, And um, if you only think of a system in terms of its parts, you don't see the new system. When you think about the system in terms of how all of these parts work together, then you understand that When these things happen, the system really does change. And you have to think about a space of systems, uh, a range of systems that that you're able to deal with. So let's spend a little bit of time on some very, very basic ideas. And, um, you know, it may be a a little... uh, I don't want to insult anyone by having to make these definitions, but I think that it's very important that we have these consciously in our our minds when we're talking about this topic. What is a system? Well, a system, uh, by one definition, I think this is is, uh, in line with most uh, definitions that you'll see out there, a system is anything that's more than the sum of its parts. Parts affect one another. Um, these interacting parts become a new thing. So new attributes that aren't there in the parts individually arise uh, through these interactions. A lot of people refer to this as emergence. Um, and the whole purpose of building a system is to get these emergent behaviors uh, we think about functional decomposition when, you know, it's one of the first things we learn about when we're uh, taught how to be systems engineers. Take a function and decompose it. Um, well, that's a really terrible term for what you're doing because what you're doing is you're saying, I've got this function that I that I need to have. What functions can I add so that when they interact, I also get this function that I want? It's, it's a... It's a, a an additive process. And every time you, uh, you want a new function, you have to add more functions to get it. You're constantly relying on this emergence in order to build up a system. And so if you're not thinking about systems in these terms, you're really not thinking about systems. You're thinking about something else. Uh, so systems are intrinsically about what you're adding, not what you're decomposing or... Uh, you know, those kinds of ideas, but it's all a big additive process. What that means is that interfaces aren't the primary problem among all these pieces. The primary problem is interaction. I love this example here, uh, a bunch of kids playing uh, snap the whip. From a kind of an abstract point of view, all of the interfaces here are identical, you know, hands holding hands, but the net interaction makes the experience of any individual in this system very different from from the others. Uh, You could take absolutely identical people and put them in this situation, and still everyone would experience something different. It's interactions that build systems, not interfaces. So when you put these systems together, you know talk about systems integration, um, what you're doing is not just sticking pieces together and saying, yes, the interfaces match and we're we're good to go. what you're doing is you're trying to figure out what new things um, have come out of this uh, out of this integration um, Are they the things that you wanted? Are they only the things that you wanted? probably not so you can look at the difference between a a killer whale and a shark, for example. Very similar systems made out of different parts. Or a killer whale and a seal. Very different systems made out of of similar parts. The system is not defined by the parts. The system is defined by how those parts come together and interact and, and what the consequences of those interactions are. There's a lot of value in learning uh, to think this way. Uh, you not only get this notion of, of the additive behavior, or the additive nature of systems engineering and a functional decomposition and so forth, but you also start to understand that you're gonna have more than you, than you bargained with uh, when you finally get the system put back together again. And your ability to understand what you've got When you put it all together, especially when you put it together with a complex environment, um, that's really what systems engineering uh, is all about. Okay, so um, we need to talk about the complexity crisis because it's not like we just keep building the same systems over and over again um, and we're just learning how to do it better we really are dealing uh, with a a continuing escalation, especially in the space business uh, of complexity, because the whole nature of the business, uh, especially when you're doing things like exploration, is, all right, you've solved the easier problem, now solve a harder problem. Okay, you got that one? Let's do another harder one. Every time we look and we see out to to a certain distance, the scientists say, oh, that's great, now can we see what's beyond that, and so forth. this is why we're moving into these uh, arenas like Titan balloons and and whatnot. Um, this is the the, the motive for uh, for the missions, and it's also the motive for our concerns about resilience. Well, what's complexity all about? Um, it's about interactions because you're adding more stuff. Um, the, either because the system itself is getting more complicated or because the environment's getting more complicated or some interaction between the system and the environment is more complicated, Uh, whatever. But, But it's interactions that have produced the problem. Well, what is complexity then, basically? I claim that complexity is not much more than a measure of how hard something is to understand. You can take something that to a novice might appear to be quite complicated and and complex, but to an expert, oh, this is easy. I understand how all of these pieces work. This is not a complex system. It just looks complex to to you because you don't understand it. Complexity is therefore some relationship between the engineer and the system. It's this fundamental notion of understanding that that is really at the root of this whole complexity issue. And so it's understanding that you really have to tackle uh, if you're going to deal with complexity and all of the interactions that uh, are produced by it. Well, how do we deal with understanding? If you look at um, how we deal with, with understanding in science... Um, we look for simple rules that explain the complex behavior. <clears throat> These simple rules can be things like recurring structure. I see the same kinds of things in lots of different places. There must be something going on here that I can understand and exploit to, uh, to broaden my understanding across the whole space. Uh, the discovery of DNA, for example, in biology explained so much. It was a recurring pattern... People knew it was there. When they finally understood what that pattern really meant, it opened up a lot of of, uh, channels for for understanding. Layered descriptions are the same way. Um, You can understand a lot about how the genetic code works and and, uh, so forth without understanding the quantum physics that underlies the chemistry of of the molecules. So there's a, a layering of descriptions here that is exploited right all the way up uh, through to the top levels of uh, biology. Um, Separation of concerns is another example of of a a kind of rule that we look for, uh, where we think we can understand issues in isolation. We don't have to understand the whole picture, all of the issues all rolled together, stirred into one. We can tease them apart, and we can think about chemistry today, and uh, inheritance of of traits tomorrow um, and evolution the day after that, whatever the case may be, we can tease these issues apart and look at them on their own merits. So these are the the kinds of approaches that people take to to understanding what on the surface can appear to be very complex. And through uh, these kinds of pursuits, Um, we arrive eventually uh, at at a better and better understanding of of the systems that we're dealing with. A nice thing about uh, these kinds of of, uh, patterns is that they not only describe what's happening, but they explain. Um, Here's a few examples. I won't uh, go into these in any detail. I particularly love the one about the Fibonacci series in the uh, in the heart of the of the flower. There, uh, you can ask me later how that comes about. It's very interesting. Um, but people noticed this pattern a long time ago. They eventually got to the point where they said, "Not only do I understand this, what this pattern is telling me I understand why this pattern is there in the first place. I understand um, how to predict." other examples from this pattern, uh, and so forth. And and so these patterns really um, are at the heart of understanding uh, complexity. They're at the heart of dealing with the complexity problem. The same principles apply in engineering, of course. Uh, We see these patterns uh, all the time in engineered systems. Uh, Recurring structure in the form of mass production For example, standard interfaces, layered descriptions um, all over the place uh, in software and uh, communications protocols, that sort of thing. Separation of concerns, that's what functional decomposition was all about in the first place. People promote weak coupling, modularity. All of these are patterns that we impose on systems in order to make them understandable and therefore, by the definition that I gave, less complex. If you understand them, they're not complex. So, what are these things, these, these patterns? Well, they're really the organizing concepts of an architecture. When, um, when you ask somebody, what's the architecture of, their, of your system? And if the answer that comes back is, well, I've got blocks A, B, C, and D, and they're connected like this, they haven't told you what their architecture is, when they can tell you what the organizing patterns are that makes their system understandable, what are the fundamental building blocks, the fundamental concepts upon which their system is built, and, and why do they think those particular concepts have the explanatory power uh, to, to contain complexity, then they've explained their architecture to you. Okay, that's what architecture is. The problem is that these concepts are very easy to lose. In in any given system, there are a lot of concepts in play. On the sidebar on the right, for example, I took an IMU, an inertial measurement unit, gyros and accelerometers, that sort of thing. I said, well, what concepts does an IMU participate in? Well, of course, it's a sensor and a control concept. But is that all? Of course not. It's a region and a fault containment concept. It's a load and a power concept, and so forth. I mean, this this list is very long. I just gave a a handful of examples of the different conceptual frameworks that you have to appreciate that IMU uh, from. All of these concepts have to be melded together into a realization that you can actually build that realization has boxes and wires and structure and and software programs and so forth in it. But those pieces are fundamentally not what the system is constructed out of. The system is constructed out of these concepts uh, that are realized in this hardware and software, but the concepts themselves, that's where the fundamental engineering, the fundamental understanding is. That's where you tackle complexity, and if those concepts get lost in the process of being translated into realization, then you've lost the conceptual integrity of your system. I'm sure you've heard that term, conceptual integrity. That's what it means. So if concepts are so important, um, why do we let realization rule? If if you go to a a typical uh, review, uh, if you look at the way things are documented, the way we write requirements, uh, the way we document interfaces, and so forth. They're focused on realization almost exclusively. Yes, every now and then you'll hear a conceptual description of some issue or another, but it's usually in the context of an IMU, for example. Um, and this has been a real problem in engineering, This is how complexity moves in, even though you may have started with good concepts. This is how complexity moves in and asserts itself uh, when you move to realization and you forget what these concepts were there for in the first place, and you forget to impose those, those rules, those patterns, that order on the system. You know, every little escape where you say, well, I've got this problem, I could either fix it quick and move on or uh, and violate my concept but hey it's just one little violation or I can preserve the concept do what's right and and keep the integrity of the system together every little one of those exceptions that goes into a system breaks a concept somewhere makes the system less understandable you eventually get to the point where a system is so not understandable that you're afraid to change anything. And if you've ever been in a situation where a project manager has got a tough choice, there's a problem to be fixed, but he's afraid to touch the system because it's going to undo a whole bunch of testing and so forth and so on, you know exactly what this problem is. So you you have to give these concepts room. They have to have room in your engineering processes, in your thinking, and so forth. And you've got to give each of them their own space because as soon as you let them start to interfere with one another in your thinking, things become much harder to understand, right? So there's a big difference then between pattern and design. These conceptual patterns um, have to be preserved, uh, nurtured, uh, reviewed, communicated, and so forth, all through the the development cycle. Um, They are what determines what the design can and cannot be. The design is something separate from the concepts. The concepts say, no, you can't do this because that that's inconsistent with this pattern. Therefore, the design space shrinks around that. Or the concept may say, no, you have to keep this area flexible because we need to, uh, to keep these options open. So the design has to accommodate those kinds of flexibility also. It's a set of rules, constraints, and so forth that tell you what the design can be, not what the design is. You have to keep these these distinct from one another. If you find a system that you say, oh, that's really elegant. Just look how easy everything fits together and how easy it is to change things and so forth and so on. uh, That kind of engineering elegance is basically because somebody in the process understood the rules and and insisted on, on maintaining them throughout the development. Okay, so pattern is important. Um, but not all patterns are created equal. We can think of lots of different patterns that our individual institutions use to, uh, you know, this is the way we do things around here. You've heard stories like that, I'm sure. Well, um, that may be the way things are done. That doesn't necessarily mean that's the best way for things to be done. And so we have to keep in mind that these concepts themselves need to have a lot of rigorous review. And what really um, is important uh, is that these these concepts um, have this explanatory power. And and we can keep them well separated and and able to explain uh, why things are the way they are, why they will work, and that sort of thing. When you're looking for good patterns... You're looking for a couple of key properties. One is stability. Um, If you keep changing your concept during development, there's a good chance that you won't have provided a whole lot of guidance because you're probably reacting more than directing uh, the effort. And if the concept really is so weak that it has to continuously change in order to keep up with what's going on, it's really not a guiding concept. What you're looking for is something that's so stable that it can keep you on track throughout the development. You're also looking for things that are fundamental. There are a lot of patterns that we use that are so full of incidental little details uh, that it, you know, takes specialists to even understand what all the details are. Uh, That's not providing good uh, guidance to your conceptual architecture either. So, You know, we take a hint from nature, the the patterns in nature, once we really understand them, tend to be fairly simple. In fact, uh, the more we dig, the simpler they seem to get. There may be more layers, we may have uh, a much broader arena to work in, uh, but the concepts themselves tend to be fairly straightforward um, and and simple. It's also important that um, that these concepts, especially these engineering concepts, are guided by good principle. Principle uh, is things, in my definition at least, things, that's the last thing you would give up. If somebody says, well, what are the principles of, of this particular concept? And there's anything in that list that you would just... Um, give up readily, then it's not a principle. You've really got to peel back and peel back and peel back until you find out what you really fundamentally care about. Those are going to be the stable, fundamental pieces of a concept. You'll also find that these kinds of of patterns have a lot of explanatory power um, that is useful in in modeling. If you find that your system is very hard to model, you've got 10,000 details that have to be represented before you can get to the point uh, where you think you've got a good representation of what's going on, um, then you're probably not dealing in fundamental conceptual space. You've really got to figure out what these things uh, are so that the modeling itself becomes easier. Because modeling is is uh, basically an expression of what you think you understand. If you can't model it, you probably don't understand it. And you've also got to be able to Prove that you are compliant to these concepts. Like I said, these concepts have to carry you all the way through development, right on into operations. If you don't know continuously throughout that whole process that you are still compliant with the concepts that guided this design in the first place, um, then you've got a problem. So good patterns, uh, guided by these kinds of, of ideas, these are really fundamentally what makes understanding uh, practical and therefore how to deal with uh, the whole complexity issue. Now I know this is all very uh, airy kinds of stuff, and hard to maybe map into your day to day engineering experience, Um, but believe me this is really uh, important. I wanna give you just one very small example to kind of uh, give you a little bit of idea of what I'm thinking about here. Um, And uh, when we are doing our our questions, you can can ask me some more. A lot of people in this audience I know um, are familiar or work in uh, fault management. And I've been doing fault management-related things for a long time. And these are the kinds of concepts that I was taught uh, uh, that fault management is all about. Things like fault trees and failure modes analyses. You've got to know what the difference is between an error and a fault and a, and a failure. In fact, we're still trying to define those words even today. Um, you detect things. You have monitors that say something's wrong. Uh, you have the ability to isolate or respond to these faults. People talk about priorities. Well, I've got to take care of this before I take care of that, or levels, I'll do the things up here first, and then here, and then here, and that sort of thing. Uh, we talk about critical events, critical periods, mark and rollback, safing. I mean, the list goes on and on. These are, these are the... Everyday ideas that people kick around when they do fault management, and I haven't seen very many exceptions to this across the whole industry. Um, there are patterns in using these ideas. Things like monitors trigger responses. You know, it's just, it's the uh, the reflex idea, um, the, the rules of of reaction in the system but you have to be able to disable them. Why? Well, somebody found that was a good idea at one point, and so we put enables and disables on all of our monitors and responses. Um, and you have to be able to, com- to terminate command sequences as part of your, your fault response. Why? Well, because fault responses and nominal activities don't know how to get along with one another. You're either doing one or the other, so if you hate doing a fault response, kill the sequence. That's how it works. And, and so forth. You know, you can go through the principles, uh, no hair triggers, um, log your, your actions. You know, there's a whole bunch of things like this. That's, that has been, for most of the industry, uh, the nuts and bolts of how you do fault management. Are these fundamental? Well, um, not really. There's a lot of imprecision in these concepts. Like I said, we're still trying to define what some of these terms even mean. Uh, the patterns and principles aren't particularly strong. Um, there, uh, a lot of, there are a lot of ad hoc Methods used to coordinate actions in these systems. Um, A lot of tuning uh, that that gets done in order to make the systems work. Uh, Lots of exceptions on how things work. Um, And you have to know thousands of little details in order to make it all work, which involves a lot of testing. Um, So it's really, there's not something fundamental here that, that's telling you why this system is a good fault management system. What what are the patterns here that really uh, make it understandable, modelable, and, and resilient, robust? No concise theory of fault protection. Fault management. Uh, this is something that... Uh, a number of people in this room have been trying to correct in the last few years, um, but still not quite there. So let's take one of these ideas out of, out of this set of concepts and patterns and so forth, and let's just pick it at one of them. Uh, you, something you'll find in virtually every fault management system is some kind of a persistence test. You see something that uh, is indicative of a problem. If it repeats itself three times or something like that, oh, now it must really be a problem, right? So now we're gonna react to it. Well, so what is persistence? Persistence is a fundamental concept of these approaches. Um, it appears um, in monitoring functions especially, and, but in also uh, a few other places. But what, is it, what does persistence really mean? Is it a likelihood? Do I turn persistence up and down according to how likely it is that there's a problem? Well, in some situations, yes. In others, it might be, well, yeah, we know there are going to be glitches, but it's only the ones that persist over a long period that we say that's, that's a real problem. So maybe it's more of a duration indicator. Or maybe we say, well, no, uh, if, as long as these things don't happen very often or are too close together or too many times in a row, we're okay, we can absorb that. Uh, So it's really more of about system error tolerance. Or maybe it's, well, you know, we've got these two responses that are going to go off and we want this one to go off before that one, so we'll turn the persistence on this one up a little bit um, and and make it uh, hold off so that this other one gets a chance to go. Or maybe we're having a problem where we've, we've, we're running tests and this one monitor keeps going off despite the fact that there aren't any problems. So just tune it up, turn the persistence up a little bit, we'll be okay. So here's a very basic idea that occurs over and over again in our fault management systems and nobody knows what it means because it doesn't mean anything in particular. It's a gadget. And the ideas behind that gadget are not articulated anywhere. They're in people's heads. So this is a good example of um, a lack of conceptual integrity in the system, where what we really care about and the things we would like to be able to explain and understand uh, are not supported by the mechanisms we put in place to do that job. So what does fault management really do? Well, we know that it observes the system. Uh, We know that it depends very much on models. Uh, If you didn't have models of the system, meaning you didn't really understand how things worked, uh, you'd have a hard time um, deciding how to put one of these kinds of systems together. We know that it cares about system state. It wants to know the difference between failed and not failed, uh, to put it in the simplest terms. Um, But it also needs to know other things like, uh, you know, under the circumstances, what's the right thing to do? Those circumstances being system state. System in this case, of course, includes not just a spacecraft or something like that, but the environment that it sits in. We need this fault management system to choose and coordinate its actions. We need it to direct the system, to be able to go out and, and reach into the system and make things happen. Uh, and we need it to be responsive to our objectives, whether those are safety objectives or the completion of a critical activity or what have you. Okay, um, This goal-directed... Behavior is very much uh, a a feature of of fault management. Well, what I've just done is I've described a a control system. And you're going to hear all about control systems later. Fault management is fundamentally a control system. But I would go even further and say that fault management is a part of an integrated control system. You cannot take fault management out of this larger context and say there's... Control systems for normal, and there's control systems for abnormal, and those two don't need to to have anything to do with one another. They've at least got to be integrated in, in some way, and ideally, they're the same thing. They're the same control system. It's just that the spectrum of conditions that that control system is capable of dealing with is a bit broader than just normal, everyday things. So, when you talk about control systems, uh, what we're really interested in here are uh, cognitive control systems where there's some notion of of state and objectives and, and, and that sort of thing. And when you come at it from this point of view, fault management takes on a completely different character. The concepts are different, the patterns are different, the principles are different. And all this other stuff we've been talking about is more mechanization than it is conceptual ideas. When you get into this mode of thought, where the concepts have retained their prominence, fault management changes from detecting and responding to faults to achieving system objectives, even when faults happen. Fault management verification goes from making sure you test all the monitors and responses to verifying that the system is able to guard all of your expectations on system performance. This is a completely different mindset that isn't, is often not reflected in V and V programs. I've seen far too many projects worried about the burn down list of 3,000 items that they've got to check off to declare the system as verified, and not really thinking about whether or not they've got a good fault management system. Okay, so that's, that's an example. And this applies across the board, anything you can think of. This is not just about fault management. It's not just about software. It's not just about spacecraft. It's not just about environments. It's not just about development. It's about all of these things and how they interact with one another, how they relate to one another, and what kinds of patterns we put in place to make sure that we keep a grip on everything that's going on. So, uh, this raises some natural questions. What are the patterns and principles of resilience? Can anyone here answer that question? Maybe you can. I would love to hear the answer. But I think this is the kind of question that, that we need to be dealing with. If we don't have a theory for fault tolerance, I would claim we probably don't have a theory for resilience either. And if it takes as long to come up with a theory of resilience as it has taken to come up with one for fault tolerance more narrowly, then we've got our work cut out for us. Is overall architectural uh, integrity a prerequisite for resilience? I would claim yes. I would say that if the architecture itself is not sound, there's no way you could claim that that's a resilient system. And I don't care what technologies you throw at it. I don't care how hard you test these resilience features. The architecture itself in all aspects has to be sound because an architecture that is not sound is not understandable. And an architecture that is not understandable cannot ever claim resilience. That's my opinion. On I think this is something we should talk about. And how do you integrate these concepts of resilience into the broader architecture? We can't do like we've tried to do with fault management for so long. of Glue it on. Get the nominal behaviors done first and then stick on fault management. That won't work. Just won't work. So how do you integrate resilience into the process? So those are the basic questions so here's here's the basic message resilience starts with strong concepts it ends when conceptual integrity is lost and the only way to preserve these things is through principled architecture